الجزيرة بودكاست Welcome to the take from Al Jazeera. Today, we're discussing ChatGPT, the powerful AI language model that can understand and generate human language. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. That's not me. Join me, Malika Bilal, as we explore the capabilities and limitations of ChatGPT. Wait, stop. That is not my name. I take a few months off for parental leave and AI takes over my job? Tune in and stay informed on the cutting-edge technology shaping our world. Tune in is cute, but this is how we do an intro. ChatGPT, like it said, is an artificial intelligence model that can write pretty much anything you ask of it, including the top of our show. Microsoft just invested $10 billion. But it's not just fun and computer-generated games. There are costs, and that includes human costs. I think the assumption that technology or the digital age is somehow inherently different from previous cycles of exploitation, we have to really, really interrogate that. And we'll hear from one worker who feels like he paid the price. I'm Malika Bilal, it really is me, and this is The Take. ChatGPT is a web program that generates text. It was created by a company called OpenAI. It's open to the public, and it's free. One of our producers turned its answers into audio so you can hear it. Putting it in my voice was courtesy of a different AI program. And before we talk about some of the costs, we have to talk about what it does. And again, we've provided the voices. Hi, I'll be playing ChatGPT. It codes. Here is a code example for a simple chatbot using OpenAI's GPT-3 language model in Python. It writes poetry. The rise of neural nets and deep learning too shall shape the world, a dream come true. And it can make jokes. Why don't scientists trust atoms? Because they make up everything. It launched to the public at the end of November, and it's gotten a lot of attention. To break down the hype, I'm talking with Michael Kearns, author of The Ethical Algorithm. How did you first hear about this? I first heard about the release of ChatGPT specifically, more or less when everyone else did. Every time I try to go to ChatGPT, I'm told it's at capacity and come and try <laughs> that later. Okay, so. But this isn't Michael's first chatbot. He's been looking at these kinds of artificial intelligence, machine learning applications for years now. When I was back at Bell Labs, a bunch of us for fun worked on sort of an early type of chatbot. Michael headed the AI department at Bell Labs, a major hub of tech research and development, through 2001. These generative models, as they're called, and specifically large language models for generating natural language text, they've been around for a little while now. A decade and a half later, in 2015, OpenAI, the company that runs ChatGPT, started up as the dream child of some of the biggest names in the tech world. They include Elon Musk, you know who he is, Peter Thiel, Thiel worked with Musk at PayPal years ago, and is chairman at Palantir, a tech company focused on defense and security. And there are a few others, but most importantly, Sam Altman, OpenAI's current CEO. 
In the beginning, they all pulled $1 billion and launched OpenAI as a nonprofit. Their stated goal was, quote, to benefit humanity as a whole, unconstrained by a need to generate financial return. It sounded like they wanted to make the world a better place instead of just making money. So how did they do? As far as the technology goes, Michael says they did a good job. It never worked this well before because we never had so much data before. So the goal of these large language models is to take some prefix of text, like the text that you type into them, and say, I'm going to try to predict what the most likely word is after that prompt that you typed in. And the way they build these models is they just have a massive collection of actual textual language data from wherever they could get it. Then they're just building a very, very complicated, powerful statistical model that given the sequence of words so far, what's the most likely next word? This is at a high level what it's doing. When I first started playing with the earlier versions of these models a year ago, the first thing that amazed me, it was these things were generating grammatically, syntactically correct completions. As we mentioned, the basis of this technology isn't new. But seeing what we've seen, have we turned a corner here? Are we living in a world where the next generation might say, wow, you used to live in a world where you had to write things yourself without AI? I do feel something pretty fundamental has happened here, whether it'll really be that people at some point won't need to learn to write well anymore. I don't know, but I do think from a science standpoint, they've really cracked some difficult problem. Some people, by the way, would say that the difficult problem they cracked is the so-called Turing test, which is the ability of an algorithm to fool a human being into thinking that the algorithm is a human being. I'm not sure that I think it's reached that stage yet, but I do think for the first time in my career, something much closer to, I don't know if I want to call it intelligence, but sort of (laughs) a, a very broad language agent has been developed that has some pretty impressive and also alarming characteristics. Meanwhile, OpenAI's financial goals changed. And in 2019, the company moved from their nonprofit business model to something new. Investors can make a profit now. So I asked Michael how we, the public, are part of the plan, getting to use ChatGPT without charge. It is readily available for the public to use for free as of the date of this podcast. We know that Microsoft is investing billions of dollars in the company behind it, OpenAI. Yeah. So free for now, perhaps not in the future, but is that what makes this unique? I think the publicly available free interface has generated a huge deal of publicity for them, right? And as per my Twitter feed, they are getting a very large amount of free advertising by people who play around with this thing and then post the results. A lot of sort of, oh my God, look how good this thing is, or look how funny it is, but like a, just because of who my colleagues are, a lot of them are concerned about ethics and AI. And so a lot of the examples are, this is kind of disturbing, this isn't so great. And Michael's colleagues aren't the only ones. Even before ChatGPT, there were investigations, studies, and reports 
pointing out how common it is for artificial intelligence models to be sexist, racist, ableist, and in many other ways, unfair. When it comes to facial recognition, several studies have shown that white, middle-aged men are most likely to be identified correctly, while black women are most likely to be misidentified. Social media app TikTok is accused of promoting homophobia and anti-transgender violence. Amazon is learning a tough lesson about artificial intelligence. The company has now abandoned an AI recruiting tool after discovering that the program was biased against women. So I want to talk briefly about the ethics behind this technology. Much has been written and discussed about how this raises ethical questions and complications when it comes to academia, with fears of plagiarism and the potential of cheating. But what other ethical questions should we be considering? So the number of ways things could go wrong is just sort of not even innumerable. The ethical issues proposed by, you know, ChatGPT and similar large language models throws out the window a lot of what people like me have thought about the topic before. In one of the earlier versions, I found that if I typed in a prefix of text that referred to an ungendered proper name, like Chris or Pat, it would almost always complete that with male pronouns. That is like the tip of a tip of some iceberg. Maybe when we ask it for a summary of a celebrity's work, that summary is ever so slightly less positive in tone on black celebrities than it is on white celebrities. How would we even measure and detect that? My point here is, is that this is just going to be a big game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. As a scientist, this is not the way we want to proceed. We asked ChatGPT about that. It agrees and says its parent company, OpenAI, is trying to solve the problem. They are actively working on developing techniques to reduce bias in machine learning models and also on expanding the data and languages they use to train their models to make them more inclusive and diverse. Figuring out where this data comes from could help with at least one step in this process. Because if the data is biased to begin with, well, the search starts there. ChatGPT's data comes from Wikipedia articles, news stories, and online chat logs. This is what ChatGPT has to say. The model is fed a large corpus of text data, such as books, articles, and websites, and it learns to understand the relationship between the words and phrases in the text. This process allows the model to learn the structure and meaning of the language, so that it can generate text that is similar to the text it has been trained on. So yes, there are real threats of sexism, racism, and national bias with ChatGPT. But then there's toxicity and violence, the nasty stuff that's plagued the internet forever. Coming up, how solving that problem is making life worse for one worker in Kenya after the break. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking about ChatGPT and the ethics involved with its technology now that it's released to the public. Toxic content, including sex, violence, hate speech, all has to be trained out. And I talked to someone who says there's a price to pay for that filtration process. My name is Nanjala Nyabola. 
I am a writer, a researcher, and advocate. I am also the author of Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya. We reach Nanjala outside of London, but Kenya is home, and she's seen how content moderation is affecting workers in her country. Kenyans were among those contracted to help ChatGPT learn to filter out toxic content. It was a story first broken by Time.com. Even if you're just online posting pictures of cats, a porn video, a violent video, a racist video, or a tweet or a post or whatever is only like six steps, three steps away from you. And that's why the human element is necessary to sort of add speed bumps to the negative content that's out there. Where is this human element coming from? The human element is basically to teach the AI to identify some of this negative content. And that means that they have to consume it. And then they have incentives to consume it at a large volume. And they have incentives to consume it quickly so the machine, the AI can be trained faster to identify and to respond to these things and therefore increase the speed bumps. That work of being that filter there's an element of exploitation embedded in that because this is not work that the CEO of Microsoft would volunteer to do or would volunteer his children to do. And I think that that comes from a knowledge that this is work that is deeply scarring and to what end? One person who said he was scarred was Mofat Ochien Okini. He worked for Sama, a San Francisco company, in an office outside Nairobi. They contracted with OpenAI before ChatGPT came online, and Mofat worked in content moderation for them. And just a warning, this is disturbing content. Yeah, so for me, the course I took was computer science, and then I started working in summer in 2019 March. First, Mofat says he started in labeling. He was shown videos of things and gave them labels. Skin, cloth, shirt that kind of thing. Then he was assessed for moderation. He went through two days of training, he says. That's when a psychologist, uh, or rather a counselor, was brought in and then he took some 20 minutes to explain to us that uh, the content is very sensitive. It was something very new. Sama told us the details of the project were confidential, but Mofat said their group was divided. There were people working on hate speech and people moderating violent content, but he was assigned to work on sexual content. I was working on uh, sexual content, so uh, to that uh, extent, I understood it. And he says they were given a monthly bonus, the equivalent of around 60 U.S. dollars. His salary at one point, he says, was 28,000 Kenyan shillings a month, around $240 in 2022. They were on contract for one or two months at a time, so there wasn't a lot of job security. And the work was tough, he says. It wasn't that good because taking the entire day reading about rape, uh, incest. So you can imagine reading such content the entire day and then for the entire weekend. They were like things that were really, uh, they seemed to be real. So you see such like content, uh, for me, it changed my perspective of looking at things, especially for incest and maybe... Uh, um, let me say, um, uh, defilement. So for me, when reading those content, uh, they were really real in my mind. 
When I was doing that project, I had a family, I had a very beautiful young wife and a young child, but then uh, after the project, things changed, so many things changed about me, so as at now, I'm staying alone, uh, my wife left. He blames what he witnessed for destroying his family. My wife also that uh, there were changes. I was not giving her as much attention as it used to be before. So she decided to go away. He says he was afraid of interacting with his own child. And now the mother has full custody. While at Sama, Wafat says he went to one counseling session. But Sama says licensed medical workers and a 24-hour hotline were always available. Mofat also says he tried to see a psychologist after he'd left Sama, but couldn't afford it. A session of maybe three hours could cost 10,000 uh, Kenya shillings, and then he told me that I was to have maybe at least three sessions in a week so that I can maybe come back to normal. And then that was very expensive to me because I can't even afford just giving 1,000 uh, per session per day. So now he's reached out to a lawyer. We should say that Sama offers a number of different jobs, and some Kenyans we heard from are very happy working there. Sama's press team told The Take they were upfront about the work they were offering, and refusing work does not limit people from working on other projects. Sama also said after the East Africa team raised concerns, quote, We did a thorough evaluation of how it happened, put in new guardrails to prevent it from happening again, and even had to let some people go. End quote. They say they ended their contract with OpenAI within 24 hours of the team raising concerns. But, they insist, Kenyans deserve a seat at the table as tech builds the AI algorithms that will impact their lives. As for Nanjala, she doesn't use ChatGPT herself. Why do we accept that it's all right for private capital to expose working-class people to these kinds of harm without at least interrogating it, at least saying, hey, why should this happen here and not here? Why have we accepted it as inevitable? And so I think for me, those are some of the real questions. ChatGPT brought in a record one million users less than a week after it was first released to the public. Now, a new version, ChatGPT4, is on the horizon. There is the Microsoft investment and reports that Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin have been back at the office for the first time in years over concerns about the AI race. On the question of keeping people safe, Nanjala says there's not a lot of time to waste. Is this the model that we want? Is this how we want this to go down? As a researcher and as a practitioner in this space, what I want to see is compelling the people who are building so much of the digital technology that's being rolled out in our lives, slow down and think about these questions and think about what these models look like 5, 10, 15 years from now. Because I think there is a business impetus that is seeking profitability, that is seeking constant growth, feed the monster that justifies these kinds of models. And so my desire would be for people to slow down and actually grapple with these externalities, not as an afterthought, but as part of the cost of building and deploying digital technology. 
And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Miranda Lynn, Nagin Oliai, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producers are Andy Greiner and Adam Abugad. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Friday.